Hi, this is Diane Student. I'm one of the hosts of the History Ghost Bump podcast, and I'll never forget the first time I saw the 1960 movie Psycho. It sat with me for some time. Even still occasionally gets me to blink through the shampoo in my eyes to make sure that I'm in the bathroom alone. The shower scene in which Anthony Perkins' Norman Bates stabs to death Janet Lee's Marion Crane is one of the most memorable in all moviedom. Psycho is nearly, to me, the perfect horror movie. It's atmospheric and suspenseful. It's set in a spooky location. The fact that it was filmed in black and white only adds to the creep factor. The music totally sets the tone. Alfred Hitchcock crafted a masterpiece with this one. But to me, what was even more compelling about the movie Psycho is when I found out that there's a story behind the story. A true one. It doesn't. Okay, so I heard so we're on the bus. My dad took yeah. us to Dallas. For One time, when I was little, uh, my dad a, ran it. When I was little, my dad church, a man came out of the restaurant. Yeah, it's a story. Here we have a quiet little motel, tucked away off the main highway, and as you see, perfectly harmless looking, when in fact, it has now become known as the scene of the crime. This motel also has, as an adjunct, an old house, which is, if I may say so, a little more sinister looking, less innocent than the motel itself. Of course, the victim, or should I say victims, hadn't any conception as to the type of people they would be confronted with in this house, especially the woman. It's raining out. Mother, she's just a stranger. As if men don't desire strangers. As if, oh, I refuse to speak of disgusting things. This young man, you had to feel sorry for him. After all, being dominated by an almost maniacal woman was enough to drive anyone to the extreme of... Uh... Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Well, the murderer, you see, crept in here very slowly. Of course, the shower was on, there was no sound. And, uh... I got the whole story, not from Norman. I got it from his mother. Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Every week we take a look at the stories we tell over and over again. What our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans. And this week we're ready to bring to you another special installment of the Just Just a a Movie Movie podcast. And this is our podcast where we kind of mix it up a little and look at the legends and ideas behind some pop culture things such as movies. And before we get too much deeper into that, we want to thank everyone for subscribing and encourage you all to rate and review on iTunes. We are so happy to see our little Just a Story family growing pretty much daily. We want to thank anyone who's encouraged a friend to listen or left some kind words on our page or reached out to us on Twitter and encourage those of you who haven't yet to get on board because we're chatty Cathy's and we would love to hear from you. Yeah, and if you have any ideas of your favorite urban legend or story, even like a story you grew up hearing about, let us know. Reach out to us on Twitter. 
Twitter. We'd be interested. Yeah, maybe we can give it a good old-fashioned treatment on this. Uh, uh, or maybe you could even record the opening story. So today's episode, we're talking about... Psycho, a film by Alfred Hitchcock. Warning to our listeners, will there be a lot of really bad Alfred Hitchcock impersonations in this I've been episode? talking like this for about a week now. Yeah, it's been great. So Alfred Hitchcock, besides being an amazing director, was such a great showman and promoter. He was one of the greatest characters of Hollywood. He had such a great persona. And I don't know how much of it was a persona. He was engaging and kind of became a celebrity in his own right at a time before Directors were really speaking a lot to the public. He began directing in the 20s in England and was brought over to America to make movies in Hollywood and did so for years and years and years. He has a television show. He had a television show called Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Every episode began with Good Evening. He would come out in profile, silhouette, and then introduce something, and it was always great. And so he's made lots of classic movies. Vertigo. North by Northwest. Rear Window. The Trouble with Harry. Rope. 39 Steps. And a ton more. This is one of his movies that really is ranked on the top of a lot of people's list. AFI ranked it as the best kind of thriller horror movie uh, made in the last century. I think rightly so, too. There were things that were done in this movie that if you go back and view out of context, having survived slasher films and, you know, Stephen King and Michael Crichton and all of the modern thrillers, they might seem like cliches. And you know what? They are now. But he and invented them. <laughs> That's where they started. So, no, it was completely innovative and new. And Psycho is one of those films, as the other two we've done so far have been, that have had their own legends kind of grow up around them. People, after seeing this movie, and you always hear this, were afraid to take a shower. Oh, yes. And when Hitchcock was questioned about this, when a reporter said to him, this man wrote to me and he said that his daughter's afraid to take a shower. What advice do you have for him? Hitchcock says, dry cleaning. So this movie was made in 1960. Mm -hmm. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock directed his 47th movie. And it starred Anthony Perkins, who at the time was the up-and-coming new James Dean heartthrob in the Hollywood scene. Uh, A lot of things I've read continually referred to him as the teen dreamboat. And then uh, Janet Leigh. Who was a blonde in the Hitchcock tradition after Grace Kelly. She was married to Tony Curtis, who was a huge star at the time. And they were kind of a Hollywood it couple. And that's Jamie Lee Curtis's mom. She was 31 or 32 at the time of the filming, which was older for a leading lady at that time. So kudos, Hitchcock. Even now, it's on the yeah. <laughs> It was a very small, tight-knit cast, and it was a small production. Compared right. to the sums of money that had been spent on his previous films, it was made for a mere sneeze. Right, he tried to get funding and everyone turned it down. Right, that's also a great story. Like When the Paramount Reader was first perusing the source material for Psycho, he wrote on it, impossible for film. I think Hitchcock basically said, challenge accepted. <laughs> and so he made it for $800,000. Of his own money. Right, he went all in. And he used a lot of his film crew from his TV show. And it was filmed in black and white. And it's black and white not because it's old, it's because it was cheap. Yes. I mean, you have to think Wizard of Oz predated this by years and years. But he got some really important creative people in on this movie. Correct. Um, He brought in Saul Bass. 
Saul Bass, for those of you who don't know, is a graphic designer who has influenced the way we look at things, whether we realize it or not. Just his influence spans decades and touches all types of media. He's probably most well known for his title sequences on films like West Side Story or Vertigo. Right, there's very like geometric patterns. Yes, they're incredibly stylized. His fonts have a very unique look. He is a very innovative and economical designer. So he was brought in not only to do the title sequences on Psycho, which are fantastic, but to storyboard to important scenes for the movie and the music for this movie is just amazing the cue during the shower scene is known by everybody and has been imitated a million times and parodied and a million more and it's interesting because he brought in uh, bernard herman and the famous shower scene was originally supposed to be quiet Hitchcock wanted no music during the shower scene herman created the famous score and showed it to hitchcock and hitchcock said Fine, fine. And then when Herman reminded him, you know, you told me not to score this. What do you think? Improper suggestion. Improper suggestion. <laughs> it's just a great story about what Hitchcock was probably like to work with. Yeah, he never. He was never one to give a lot of accolades. He never patted anyone on the head. He expected everyone to do their job to the best of their ability without prodding because that's what he did. He held himself to a very high standard. He did, however, double the salary that he was planning to pay Herman after seeing the finished film and realizing that every decision the man made was a stroke of genius in this arena. He originally wanted a bebop jazz score. Yeah, that would have been interesting. Hitchcock wasn't always right. So the the marketing of this movie was also completely innovative. It was hucksterism at its finest. For starters, he didn't allow critics to screen the movie in advance, which ruffled a few feathers. Meaning every critic panned it when it came out. Some of them like got up and left before the movie was over, which if you've seen Psycho is a poor decision, and I would not want to write a review for half that movie. And another thing, at the time, movie theaters were set up very differently. Yes, that's something I don't think I realized previously. People would pay for a ticket to see a movie, and they would either do like a double feature or just kind of wander in and out of films. There were coming attractions, newsreels, and shorts that played on loop continuously throughout the day, so they could pop into one of these theaters and watch the newsreel for a little while and then go see a feature, whatever. It was much more come and go. People would come in and catch just half a movie. And Hitchcock wanted none of that business with this film. And he let everybody know. It was part of the marketing campaign that you had to arrive at the beginning of the movie. No one, but no one will be admitted to the theater after the start of each performance of Psycho. And they put big newspaper ads out that stated that in big letters so everybody knew. Yeah, it was kind of a viral marketing almost. Right. And in conjunction with his instructions to audiences, he had instructions for theater owners as well. He mailed out two 20-page booklets about how to screen the film and how to enforce this policy. And the books were called The Care and Handling of Psycho. Leave the impressions to me. I'm sorry. (laughs) He suggested hiring Pinkerton guards to enforce the seating policy to reduce the amount of refund request. He mailed out order forms for lobby clocks. He sent out five-foot cutouts of himself. Of course he did. To be used in conjunction with recordings that said, How do you do? Ladies and gentlemen, I must apologize for inconveniencing you this way. However, this queuing up and standing about is good for you. 
It will make you appreciate the seats inside. It will also make you appreciate Psycho. You see, Psycho is most enjoyable when viewed beginning at the beginning and proceeding to the end. I realize this is a revolutionary concept, but we have discussed that Psycho is unlike most motion pictures and does not improve when being run backwards. I think it is crazy that it was a revolutionary idea that you would start the movie at the beginning and watch it all the way through. And he also demanded that theaters black out the whole theater after the movie was over to let the effect of the ending sink in. Normally they would they would immediately go to coming attractions or something like that right yeah, after. Yeah, he said, never but never will I allow a short to be shown after Psycho. Well, so the movie theater owners absolutely hated this idea. They thought it would really affect ticket sales. But you know when they changed their mind? When people were standing in line outside the theater begging to get in. Right, huge lines. So one of the great stories that you hear about the the lines for Psycho is that a theater owner called Paramount and was like, people are standing outside in the rain and they're about to riot, what do we do? And they contacted Hitchcock and he said, buy them umbrellas. And they did. And people, you know, news reporters came out and took pictures of people standing outside in line with umbrellas waiting to see Psycho. And they got free publicity when it came out in the morning paper. Right. There was so much publicity surrounding this movie. I love how he made the trailers for this movie. Right. He didn't want any of the actual footage to be used in the marketing campaigns. And the first two trailers that came out, again, nailed home that point like, don't come late. You have to be there at the beginning. And don't tell anyone the ending. Keep it secret. Mm-hmm. Don't ruin it for anyone. But then he also did something else that was completely crazy. He made, uh, I think it was about six and a half minute featurette. Right. Of him giving a tour of the Bates Motel and house. And so it begins with him standing there and he's like, good evening. And he does like a monologue as he walks you through the house and tells you about all these terrible things that have happened as if it's fact. And he gives really loose details, does not give anything about the movie away. And really hints that there's this crazy old woman doing this. You know, some of the audio that you heard earlier is from the featurette. Yes, and he would do things like, oh, it's just too horrible to describe. And kind of like beg off when he was about to give something big away. But what's great is at the end, he's in the bathroom where one of the most famous scenes occurs. And as he's discussing it, he like reaches up to the shower curtain, the infamous shower curtain, and pulls it back and reveals a woman screaming and Herman's music comes in, those strings, creak, 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 and it says, Psycho! And then music plays, but not more music from the movie. That's the only taste you get. And it says, Psycho, the picture that must be seen from the beginning, or not at all. And what's great is that's actually not Janet Lee. It's Vera Miles. So people still didn't know what was going to happen. All right, there's literally no footage from the movie revealed before you went to see the movie. And so this plot, this became the stuff of legend and still is. Everyone still says, you have to see Psycho. You have to see what happens at the end. Right, and if you haven't seen Psycho... Yeah, we're about to talk about it. Spoiler alert. Pause. Go watch it. Mail us a thank you note. Back. WTF, right? Yeah, right? That's right? Crazy. Okay, so now let's go over what you just watched. People that were waiting in line would beg people that were coming out of the theater to tell them what happened. And people wouldn't do it. They held to what Hitchcock said. But you know what we're going to do? Sorry, Hitch. 
We're going to go against his ratings because, you know, the Statue of Limitations. Maybe, yeah. I mean, it's only been 55 years since the movie came out, right? You've had ample opportunity, and I, I feel comfortable discussing this work and telling you what happens. So what happens? I'm sorry, Mr. Hitchcock. I'm sorry. Okay, so it begins with a woman named Marion Crane. This is Jane Lee's character. Yes. And she's involved in a steamy love affair with a man named Sam, who's played by Gavin Shaw. And they want to start a life together, but he's burdened by child support payments and doesn't have enough money. And so Marion does something unthinkable. She embezzles the sum of $40,000 from her employer. And absconds with it. So then she's in her car driving, and she gets lost, and winds up staying at a little motel she finds. How lucky for Marion that she found a hotel. And this is the Bates Motel. Does it sound familiar? It should. And here she meets the nice young man caretaker, Norman Bates. Yes, Norman's quite an endearing fellow, as played by Perkins. He's charming and sweet and a little awkward, terribly shy, has a strange habit of chewing on candy the whole time he's awake. (laughs) And he also has a passion for taxidermy. Right, there are a lot of big crows stuffed in his office. So it's important to know that behind the motel is a large, kind of creepy-looking house. Haunted House of Old. And it's actually based on a Hopper painting, which is wonderful. Um, The House by the Railroad, I think, is the title of the painting. That's where Norman should live, but he actually enjoys staying in the parlor down behind the front desk a lot more. That's his sanctuary, and that's where he and Marion enjoy a quiet, intimate dinner together. Right, and before they have dinner, he over she overhears him arguing with his mother. Who sounds perfectly wretched. Uh, about this terrible woman and all of these terrible things. Mother doesn't like Marion. It's plain during that argument. And so they have this dinner together, and one can't help but feel sorry for Norman as Mr. Hitchcock says in the trailer, you know, he's just painfully shy. Well, he's also just domineered by this mother Mm -hmm. who, from the first time you hear her, sounds like he's still like a wretched character. And so they're having dinner, and it's kind of this awkward dinner, and then she goes back to her room to take a shower. Yes, and she reveals a black slip and brassiere, which contrasts with the white one she's wearing earlier in the film, which sent censors reeling, might we add. Um, that was very sexy. Too sexy. She was pretty sexy. She was pretty sexy, but there was a man in, be- in bed with her, and that was just unheard of. But in this scene, she's wearing a black slip because she's stolen the money. Right? She's turned to the dark side. Right. As evidenced by her brassiere. But, but as she's getting undressed, and it's kind of a sexy scene... Then it goes back to the parlor. And you see Norman Bates shifting a painting to one side. And you see Norman Bates shifting a painting to one side and peering through a peephole. He's watching her. So maybe not the most sweet, endearing character. And then Janet Lee's character goes to get in the shower. Right, and Hitchcock stated that he saw this as a baptism, as her reclaiming her, her goodness and her purity. And she's in the shower, cleansing herself of the deed that she's done. She's decided to bring the money back. So at this point, we're completely on her side. She's getting rid of all the bad girl traits and just as she's having this character turn and we're gaining sympathy we see a gray-haired figure hair parted down the middle tied back in a bun come into the bathroom wielding a knife rip back the shower curtain and do away with marion crane 
And this scene is so amazing. It's a cinematic tour de force if ever there was one. This is one of the scenes that Saul Bass was pulled into storyboard. 78 cuts. And this is kind of the origination of what's called the jump cut. Which was a new idea in editing in which minuscule images were pieced together in order to give an overall impression of a scene rather than showing it in a linear way. And it was so well done because this is a woman naked in the shower. And Hitchcock was able to film it without showing any nudity. They spent seven days filming the scene. Now, that might not seem that impressive, but when you consider that they shot the entire film in around 40 days, it becomes much more impressive and you see the significance that this had for Hitchcock. It was filmed in a little room that had four breakaway walls and Janet Lee did not wish to be featured nude. She was a mother. She had small children. Um, she was terribly self-conscious about her body and didn't want to be nude. So Edith Head, who's the in charge of costuming, figured out a way to use adhesive to affix little pieces of mole skin to cover her vital areas. She would shape them in different ways depending on what the scene called for. But remember that Janet Lee is standing under running water. So often the little fix-a-flat pieces of mole skin would come unadhesed and they would have to stop production. And at one point Hitchcock says, Oh, for Pete's sake, I've seen more at the beach. They also brought in a body double to film some of the extra footage with. But Janet Lee says in her autobiography that it is her and the movie. Right. They ended up not using any of the footage that was filmed with a body double. But they used the body double for when she's dragged away in the shower curtain. That's it. They said Hitchcock was just absolutely unflinching. He might as well have been standing there with coat rack there was no giggling or silliness about it so um, another great thing about this is, and an innovative thing about this movie is it killed off the main character a third of the way through the movie right no one saw it coming this simply wasn't done janet lee was a big name and she would have been expensive to get and people who knew movies and knew movie procedures would never have said that was going to happen and people who'd viewed movies would never have thought that was going to be happening. So this was shocking on so many levels. Should we have nudity? Oh, he showed a toilet. It was the first time a flushing toilet had ever been shown on screen. It showed a murder. It didn't happen off screen. It wasn't suggested. Like, it was, it was there. He shows the disposal of the body. He kills off a main character. Like, none of this is done. This is, this is preposterous. Well, of course, they used chocolate syrup for the blood. Yes, they did. Since it was in black and white. And it was Bosco. Bosco. Is that your pen? That's my ATM card. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. So, to go on with the movie. So, you're a third of the way through. Main character's dead. You have some crazy woman that killed her. This is Alfred Hitchcock. Having lived with Psycho since it was a gleam in my camera's eye, I now exercise my parental rights. I've suggested that Psycho be seen from the beginning. In fact, this is more than a suggestion. It is required. So, last night as we were recording, the ghost of Alfred Hitchcock came up and snatched the microphones out of our trembling fingers and said, no one but no one will reveal the ending of my film. 
I believe that I was telling you about Norman compulsively cleaning the bathroom after Mother dispatches the beautiful young Marion Crane. So, after the first murder... So, our next character that comes into the movie is Arbogast, the detective that is searching for Janet Lee's character, trying to find the money. Right, he's not there because he's suspicious about a murder. He's there because he's after the 40,000 big ones she had stashed away. So he goes and he and Norman have a very memorable conversation, which is actually great because a lot of it's improvised and it drove the editors crazy because normally Hitchcock had the actors say their lines the exact same way every time so everything could be pieced together seamlessly. But he was so impressed with the performances of both of these actors that he gave them a chance to kind of do what they wanted. After that, he ventures into the sinister-looking mansion on the hill and begins walking up the staircase to see what he can see. And he is attacked by... Mother. Mommy dearest. And he falls down the scene in another cinematic feat. Hitchcock does some really interesting things with... Double exposure. With him falling down the staircase. And that scene was originally storyboarded by Saul Bass, but they didn't use that footage because Mr. Hitchcock believed that it disrupted the shock value. He thought it was too telling to show the fragmented hand on the stairs and feet on the steps. He thought he was telling the audience that something bad was going to happen when he wanted no one to be expecting it. Our next victims, I mean characters, are uh, the sister and Sam, Uh, Marion's lover. Lover, yes. And so Lila is the sister and she's played by Vera Miles and Sam is played by Gavin Shaw. And they go out looking for Marion. Now they find the Bates Motel. Her car is not there. But they think she was probably there. And they go in looking about. Right, so the boyfriend goes to distract Norman while the sister goes to search for her. She goes up again into the sinister house, is digging around, and finds someone silhouetted in a chair. Yes, she ventures down into the basement, which this is before the horror movie Code of Conduct was written. And I guess she didn't know any better. Never saw a scream. But so Lila tiptoes gently down the stairs to the basement. And in the basement, she finds a mother sitting there. And she doesn't respond to her presence. So she turns the chair around. And as she does, she recoils in horror at the sight and knocks an exposed light bulb hanging by a cord right above her head. All right, and after the lens flare, you see mother's desiccated corpse sitting there in the chair lovingly preserved by her son as the character and the viewer is shocked by this revelation mother appears behind her wielding a knife but it's not mother no it's none other than norman himself donning the clothes of the dead woman fully possessed by her personality and holding a giant knife dun 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 but our hero sam here i come to save the day no not you sam Comes and knocks out Norman. As as men are wont to do, right? Especially in a good old Hitchcock 60s movie. Yeah. So the rest of the movie is kind of denouement and kind of lays things out pretty clearly of what's going on. Sometimes a man has to walk out of the woods. And a man walks out of the woods or the psychologist comes in and just kind of explains what's happened. That Norman had killed his mother and her lover and had preserved her body and her personality had been split with Norman's personality and he would sometimes take on her role. He heard her voice in his head. He believed that she was still speaking to him. She was a domineering woman who controlled him for the majority of his life. He was so used to it that he just 
kept hearing it after she was dead. And eventually, he began to assume her personality. And when he did, he would shift into these amnesiac fugue states that he couldn't remember and couldn't recall. So to Norman's mind, he really did blame the murders on Mother. Yeah, and then Mother was responding to his attraction to women. Yes, because women were dirty, unclean creatures. And the movie ends with Norman curled up in the jail cell. Right, and he's actually catatonic at this point. Though we hear Mother speaking through him in his head, and he's permanently locked into the Mother personality. Norman is no longer with us. But there's this beautiful shot of Tony Perkins just giving us this haunting, devious stare. And it's one of my favorite final shots of any movie. And I think that that is just... It's chilling because he's so likable and so sympathetic. And then here he is. Sinister. And there's the great uh, lines in that scene. She wouldn't even hurt a fly. And as long as we're discussing Mother's role in the movie, there are some things that have to be discussed. She's maybe the most famous character, non-character in the history of motion pictures. She is the greatest MacGuffin that the master of MacGuffins ever made. Well, and Hitchcock used um, his genius and his great marketing ability to really lead people off that Mother was not an actual actress. So from the start, he never revealed that Mother was not an actual character. He had a chair made up for her that said Mrs. Bates on the back of it. And he had himself photographed sitting in the chair. And then eventually, over the course of filming, he had every actor on set photographed sitting in Mrs. Bates' chair. Except? Anthony Perkins. And there were phone calls to Mr. Hitchcock. And a lot of older actresses in Hollywood were very upset that they did not have a chance for this role to be in this new movie by the auteur Hitchcock. And he got letters and calls from actresses and talent agents and very upset that they didn't have a chance to try out for this role. But one of my favorite stories about Mother actually has to do with the recording of her audio throughout the film. So Anthony Perkins knew another young actor who was in town. It was a friend of his from his classes. And he knew that this guy did a great impression of an elderly woman. And he told Hitchcock about it when he was kind of musing about what Mother should sound like. And he said, well, how can I hear him? And he says, well, I can go get some recordings from Kubrick. Kubrick, as in Stanley Kubrick, as in, yes, that's Stanley Kubrick, had heard about this guy and thought it was hilarious, and so he had him crank call actresses using this voice and recorded the whole thing just as a gaffe. He just thought it was hilarious. So Perkins goes and gets the tapes from Stanley Kubrick and brings them back to Alfred Hitchcock, and Alfred Hitchcock says, bring him in. And so he does. He brings this guy in. The guy does his woman impression, and that's some of what you hear as the voice of mother. Now, Hitchcock didn't reveal to anyone that he was going to do this, but he actually got two other actresses to record dialogue and then spliced all three together. And that's when the voice of mother throughout the film has a quality that's very hard to pin down because it's actually the sound of three different individuals going through the same lines. All right, some great audio editing. A story that I love about this Mm -hmm. is the same person that was making the course also worked on the lovely television show Leave It to Beaver. And so while they were working on it, they brought the corpse to the studio to work on while working on the show. And the actor that played the beaver saw the corpse and asked if he could help. So the beef helped make Mother. Okay. Use that in your six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Another fun fact about Mother, as long as we're on the subject. I can't believe we're actually sitting here talking about Mother like we're in psychotherapy. But anyway, 
is that several different actresses were used to play Mother. Hitchcock was all about disguising the fact that it was actually Tony Perkins. That's why he used the voice tracks. He originally considered having him record the dialogue in a woman's voice, but thought it would be too obvious. And in a similar fashion, he cast several different stunt doubles to stand in for Mother on some of the scenes where it might be more obvious. Uh, Like the scene where she's coming into the shower, that's a female stunt double who was a trained equestrian that he believed had slight enough hips and broad enough shoulders to pass for Tony Perkins. And in the scene where um, Norman is carrying Mother upstairs, that's actually an actress who is a little person that played one of the munchkins in The Wizard of Oz um, that was cast to fill out that role. Another Six Degrees connection. Right, yeah, go ahead and do that. That'll win trivia night every time. But Edith Head, the costume designer on this film and others uh, for Hitchcock, stated that getting the boots and all those different sizes was a relative nightmare. (laughs) So this movie was something very different for Hitchcock. He was looking to do something different, something out of his norm thriller mystery kind of movie, which had done extremely well, but this was, remember, his 47th film. And he was also really perturbed that this movie, the Les Diaboliques, was done in France and People had said it was done by the French Hitchcock. He said there is no French Hitchcock. That's pish posh. I don't know if he said that, but I'm, I would wager he did. I'm sure he did. Uh, but it's centered on this gruesome murder. So I think Hitchcock may have gone looking for murder. He must have Googled murder. I think he Googled murder. And so he stumbled upon, or it was passed around, a book. And this book was by Robert Block uh, called Psycho. And it was published in 1959 and was being shopped around to the different studios. Hitchcock employed his own readers. There were people in his office whose job it was to find material for him because he was obsessed with the idea of needing something fresh. He said that style is just a parody of oneself and it's easy to fall into the trap of repeating oneself and he hated that idea. So when this script came into his office... They knew that they'd found something very special and very different. And this book was very different. It's not just a story. Robert Block based this on a true crime. Mm -hmm. Even though he took lots of liberties with it, they weren't as many liberties as he thought he was taking. Correct. So Block lived in Wisconsin, which seems a banal detail, but it's not. In his local paper, there was a report that in a town nearby to where he lived called Plainfield, there had been a murder of a middle-aged woman who was dressed out like a deer. There were mentions of other gruesome evidence found at the scene, but really no more detail than that. And so from this very meager description, in addition to what he could find in the Madison papers, which Which wasn't much... He used the prevailing psychological theories of the day, such as the Freudian analysis, to kind of reverse engineer the mind of this murderer. So he came up with a character called Norman Bates, who had a domineering mother, became fixated on her. And then he wanted mother to continue to be present in some way throughout the novel. So he made him a taxidermist and decided that he'd preserved her corpse. In addition to that, he also decided to introduce the idea of amnesiac fugues to incorporate Mother's personality into Norman's. Through the course of the movie, 
Hitchcock held faithfully to the book in most cases, other than making the character of Norman much more likable. So when Robert Block finally found out more information about this case, about this guy called Ed Gein, he was really disturbed by what he found out because he was very right. Yes, and he was very uncomfortable with the idea that he was able to parse out the motives of a deranged man whose actions made sense to no one. He said he couldn't stand looking in the mirror because he just wondered what was wrong with him every time he did, so he shaved with his eyes closed for two years. A drop of blood in the sink, swirling down. Just sounds like something out of Hitchcock. Or Raymond Garver, but whatever, yeah. So, Ed Gein is a serial killer, or a murderer, that has gone down in American history as one of the most disturbing cases. It genuinely is one of the most disturbing cases, although officially, Ed Gein is not a serial killer because serial killers must have more than three victims and he's only known to have killed two people suspected to have killed more odds are so you want to talk a little bit about eddie Gein? yeah he sounds like someone that we should psychoanalyze a little bit just a touch, just a tad, just to see how it feels. Okay, so Ed Gein grew up in the town of Plainfield, Wisconsin. He lived about seven miles out of town on a large farm with his mother and his father and his big brother, Henry. Now, the place was specifically chosen by his mother for its distance from town. She loved the idea of being isolated and keeping her family on the straight and narrow by keeping them away from the temptations of the town of Plainfield. Yeah, so Ed Gein had this really hard childhood. His father was an alcoholic. Yes, and there's some speculation that his mother drove him to drink, which, meh, maybe. Probably so. Um, his mother was named Augusta. And she came from Lutheran stock, but took the tenets of her religion to the extreme. And by the time Ed was school-aged, she was verging on religious mania. She was convinced that all the women in town were filth. She harbored a great deal of resentment toward modern fashions. And modern here, you have to remember, is like the 19. 19- Tins. But she didn't like the way women were dressing. She didn't like that they tarted themselves up with lipstick and rouge. And she just always had nasty negative things to say about any female that crossed her path. Right. She was really brainwashing her children. She used to gather Henry and Ed to her and have them kneel in front of her while she sat in her favorite rocking chair and read from Proverbs about the lament of a mother whose son is taken in by the harlot. And she would make them swear never to fornicate with women. Nothing would sully a man's soul more quickly than being tainted by women. And interestingly, a lot of her brothers didn't marry. So it seems like this may have been something that goes back even beyond the craziness of Augusta Gein. And so eventually dad died. And there was another interesting case with the brother. So Ed Gein was out with his brother Henry and they had lit a fire to try to clear some brush out. While this was going on, Ed ran into someone else's house and asked for help. That something had happened to his brother. He couldn't find him anywhere. They rushed out and found his brother laying down on the ground, not burned at all. Edgine was able to lead him directly to Henry. And it seemed like there may have been some bruising as well. You know, in hindsight, it looks like Edgine may have been involved in this death. But at the time, no one even considered it. Right. Everyone assumed that Henry had inhaled too much smoke and fallen down, hit his head on a rock, and that this was just an unfortunate accident. Now, a couple of years after Henry's death, 
the sainted mother dies. And this hits Ed very hard. The home, which had been meticulously maintained by Augusta, starts to fall into disrepair. Neighbors notice that he's getting a little more wonky. The neighbors had been noticing that Ed was wonky since he was old enough to be noticed. But it's important to mention what Ed Gein was to the small community. He's kind of like the Forrest Gump of this area. He was seen as the simpleton, but a nice guy. Little weird, but he would help anybody out. Drop of a hat. He would, you know, if you needed a ride, he'd give you a ride. If you needed help fixing a fence, he was there to help you out. If you need your children babysat. Ed Gein would pop right over. Ed Gein was a master babysitter. He loved children, and it actually makes a lot of sense if you consider that he was probably just a big kid himself. He never got to enjoy his own childhood. It's like that Michael Jackson complex. Ed would bring kids over to his house, and one day he was playing cards with this one boy, and his little brother wandered upstairs and found something and hollered at Ed, and Ed said, oh, those are just my shrunken heads. And the story got told a lot around town. He loved to entertain children with stories of adventure and gore and all sorts of things that he picked up in comics and pulp novels. Comics. Comics. Wortham. Wortham was right. Get Wortham on the phone. They are the seed of all that is evil. Mm, I'm leaning more towards religious mania being the seed for all that is evil, but... Fine. So a few years later, there was another incident. Right. Well, the town of Plainfield was rocked when the local tavern proprietress, Mary Hogan, went missing. She had had her bar opened previous day, but during normal business hours, people noticed that the shop was dark. And so someone went in to investigate and found a large blood spatter on the floor, or large pool of blood on the floor, and drag marks going out the back that led to tire tracks. They also found a shell case and a bloody thumbprint on a mug sitting on the bar. Right, and this was before all of this advanced CSI stuff. You know, Grissom from CSI wasn't going to come in and immediately be able to tell exactly who killed it from looking at this evidence. No, he was unavailable at the time because he was not alive. Um, he still is not alive, Sam. Oh, hold on a minute. Mary Hogan disappears. Now, people in the town couldn't help but talk about this because there are only about 800 people in the town. And when it goes from 800 to 799, the loss is felt. So this was big gossip. And one day, one of Ed's fellow townsmen was discussing the murder with him. And he said to Ed, you know, if you'd courted her a little bit more, she'd be at home making supper for you instead of missing. Ned said, oh, she's not missing. I got her up at the house now. And the guy thought, that's a weird thing to say, but... Oh, Eddie. Oh, wacky Eddie. Oh, that's just wacky do you Eddie. Want, do you want to pay some my kids tonight? Yeah, no <laughs> problem, man. I'll be by. Maybe Mary can come over. I'll bring some venison. And so this case was really never linked with Ed at all. No, no one suspected that Ed had done anything. Even though he continued to make those little jokes about having Mary up at the farm or he going up to town in his truck and just getting her for himself and all this stuff, people thought that was just a bad attempt at humor, which it seems that Ed had a lot of bad attempts at humor. He would laugh for no reason reason out of nowhere when no one had made a joke he always had like a kind of half-cocked smile on his face and he was very awkward with women and just struck people as very socially odd but not creepy not dangerous a few years later there was another incident in this small town so there was a local woman in town named bernice worden who owned a hardware store she was a 58 year old grandmother and her son was a deputy sheriff in town and Ed had kind of taken a shine to her recently. He'd ask her to go roller skating, which... That would make 
a great like dream sequence if they made like an Ed Gein musical. It would, in fact. And though the concept of like a serial murder musical may sound odd, Trey Parker did it. He actually did one based on Alfred Packer, the man-eater of Colorado, which I'm told is very well done. I mean, if you can make Mormonism funny, I'm sure you can bring out the levity and cannibalism. Of course, well, we highly recommend Book of Mormon. Just the story gives it two, two thumbs, thumbs up. up. But, of course, you know, they did make an Ed Gein musical. No, they didn't. It was an independent movie. You should really Google the trailer. Should you? Yeah. Should you? you really, mm. it's, 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 anyway. Okay, so Bernice Worden, Ed had asked her to go roller skating, to go dancing, and she'd kind of been like, no, that's not how I'm going to spend my weekends. And it was beginning to kind of ruffle Ed's feathers. So he came by um, while our son was in the store and on a Friday and asked if he was going deer hunting. And he said, I'll be out first thing in the morning. And then he turned to Bernice and said, do you have any antifreeze? And she said, yeah. And he said, well, I'll probably swing by tomorrow and pick some up. And leads. Now, the next day, the son does go deer hunting. It's an 11-day season, after all. You've got to get out there. And when he comes back, he's talking to a man at the local gas station. And he says, did your mama go hunting, too? And he says, well, no. She was supposed to have the store open all day. And he said, no one's been there all day. So he goes over, and he looks, and he finds, again, a big pool of blood on the floor. And drag marks leading out the back. And a shell casing. Now, in addition to this, he also finds a receipt for... Antifreeze. Ed Gein is implicated in the disappearance of Bernice Worden. So cops are dispatched, they go look for him, he's not at home, and they run over to the Hills house. Now, the Hills are a family that Ed helps out a lot, you know babysitting and running and doing errands and odd jobs. When they get there, they ask the lady of the house if she's seen Ed, and she said, yeah, he stopped in for dinner, and he's about to take my son up to town to see what's going on with the whole Worden thing. And they find Ed in a pickup truck idling in the driveway, and they ask him to account for his whereabouts, and he tells him something. He says, can you repeat it? And he tries to and doesn't. And he says, Eddie, you didn't tell that same story through twice. And he says, I was framed. That's a little incriminating. Framed for what? And he says, well, She's dead, isn't she? Hmm. That's not looking good for Mr. Ed Gein. No, so Ed Gein and his deer hunter's cap are promptly put in a squad car and taken down to the local jail. Right, and so the sheriff... Sheriff Schley. He goes over to Ed Gein's property, begins to search around. Right, because at this point they believe that Bernice may still be alive. Right, she could be tied up somewhere. Who knows what terrible things they're imagining. But it's not going to be as terrible as what they actually find. Sheriff Schley knocks down a door to the shed and he goes in and there's no light by this point and he's holding just a little flashlight and he sort of pans around looking to see if he can see anything and his elbow bumps something behind him and it starts to spin and as he turns around he is confronted with a rather grisly sight hanging from the rafters is a large hole with a pointed end. One of the ends of the pole is shoved through a human ankle. The other ankle of the person hanging from the pole is tied with twine. There are two lengths of twine suspended going down the length of the body that are holding the arms out away from the body. And she's been sliced open from nave to chop like a deer would be dressed out. In addition to all of the things that have been done to her, she's also missing her head. So the sheriff promptly begins to vomit as any sane person would when they bump into this thing in the dark this is the stuff that horror movies are made out of like i really did like as you said that like bump into that in the dark my stomach went like uh. it reminds me of the scene in silence of the lambs 
which one of the many, many inspirations for Buffalo Bill is Ed Gein. How could it not be, right? And the scene where Jodie Foster's in the dark and bumping into different things and it just, ugh, it's disturbing. That's the one of the it scariest. It really does give me chills. It's, it's really one of the scariest scenes ever filmed. So they determined that this is indeed the 58-year-old grandmother and local business owner who had recently been named Citizen of the Week in the Plainfield Review. Bernice Worden hanging upside down and naked without her head in Ed Gein's shed. So the sheriff promptly, after you know, probably cleaning himself up, gathering himself together, begins to search the house. Right, with other officers, he's not alone. And so the cavalcade of horrors that they find is astounding. And today we're going to be auctioning them off for you to purchase. Mentally, of course. Only in your imagination. We don't actually have them. And we're not making replicas. So first on the auction block, we have a lovely lampshade. It is pieced together lovingly by hand. And it's made out of a rather unusual material. Human skin. Ooh, that sounds just lovely. And we also have to go with it. A few lovely chairs with their cushions also made of patchworked human skin. Now, this human skin is tanned and cured, so you do not have to worry about spilling your drinks or your soup onto these chairs. And as long as we're having soup in these lovely chairs, let's look at the next item up for auction. Right, we have a few soup bowls made of human skulls. Right, yes, lovely. Now, they are a little hard to balance because they're irregularly shaped, but I tell you, it's worth it. The soup tastes delicious when consumed from a human skull. These are some smart pieces of dinnerware. And, of course, there are matching utensils. Matching utensils, you say? Yes, made of human bone, of course. Oh, only the finest. And don't think that we only have homeware oh, no, on this more. auction. No, no, please tell us about some of the other items. Maybe. Well, here I have a shoebox. Would you like to know what's in my shoebox? I would always. In my shoebox, I have an assortment of nine vulva. Vulva, you say? Vulva, I do say. Now, some of them are a little dried. Some of them look a little worse for wear. But if you look at this one here in the center, you will see that it has been daubed with silver paint and trimmed out with a lovely red satin ribbon. Well, that just sounds fantastic. It does indeed. And only the most creative of minds could have come up with a treatment like this. Yeah, it sounds like he really went Pinterest on these Volvos. He did, he did. Serial killer Pinterest, it's a thing. I would tag it. And so, to complete this auction, we have a lovely line of menswear. Menswear? I guess you can say it's menswear. Mm -hmm. And first up on the auction block for our menswear collection is a lovely nipple belt. Oh, the nipple belt. Is there anything that tells your peers that you have no respect for human life quite like a belt made out of nipples? And, you know, you could really match this well with a dirty plaid shirt half tucked in and torn jeans with a little blood splatter on them. Oh, hipster chic. But now the the piece de resistance. Tell us about this. Well, this really is one of a kind. And for the low, low price... Of life in prison, you yourself could have one. Here we have before us a lovely, handmade, organic, farm-raised suit. Now, let's start at the bottom. We have O. Henry Pun Award-winning pair of leggings made out of actual legs. Then as we move up, we can see that there is a full torso that can be laced on. And this is... A woman's torso complete with breasts. 
complete with breasts. Now, if it didn't have the breast, you would know it was a woman's torso. And really, what would be the point of that? Now, there are also gloves made out of real lady fingers. And we're not just talking cookies, folks. Oh, no. These are real lady fingers. To top this all off, to really complete the outfit. Right. You wouldn't want to have something that is this lovingly crafted and then reveal the ugly mug of a man up top. No, no, that wouldn't do. So we have for you today the choice of not one, not two, but nine masks made out of real women's faces. So we're being really silly about this extremely morbid, terrible thing. But why did he have this suit made out of people? Well, he had his people suit because he liked to go and get naked and wear his people suit and dance in his front yard. Obs. Well, I would use it to channel my dead, domineering mother. Oh, well, he did a little of that, too. But mostly the dancing. In roller skates. No, I'm kidding about the roller skates. So, yes, Eddie Gein had the whole suit made out of, you may say, but he's only charged with two murders. Where did he find the rest of this? So, he was a... Resurrectionist? Grave digger. All right, so resurrectionist is an old term for people that used to dig up dead bodies to be used in cadaveric research, usually for med students. Thankfully, we don't do that anymore. Are you Sure. Oh, we're not supposed to talk about it. Okay. Shh. Uh, thanks for the help, by the way. So, in addition to the two women that he actually dispatched himself, he would sneak out to the local cemeteries and dig up fresh graves. He was a regular subscriber to the newspaper, and he paid special attention to the obituary column and would tear out various obituaries and keep them and find out when the bodies were going to be laid to rest and quickly go unlay them to rest and bring them home and craft he would go get these bodies and bring them home. And this all started after the death of his mother. It's important to note. There were found among the just scatological collection one face that did look quite familiar to investigators. It was a Mary Hogan mask, which he had applied oil to to keep it fresh and put cosmetics on. Puts the lotion on its skin. Apparently she didn't have to do it. He picked that up where she left off. You may be saying, well, what happened to Bernice? Where's her mask? Well, she didn't get made into a mask yet. They found her head in a pile of trash on the floor, and he had driven two nails into her ears and turned them back and run a piece of twine between them so he could actually hang the head on his bedroom wall. And I guess that was to complement the two skulls that were used on the post of his bed. Or the lip pull on the window. But so they did identify that both of those women had met their demise at the hands of Ed Gein. He was declared insane, probably correctly, and lived out the rest of his life in a state-run mental institution. So Ed Gein was put away in an insane asylum until he died. And there are so many, so many theories about what the hell was wrong with this guy. A lot. Lots. A lot. Everything. Uh, All of it. A lot of people say he was schizophrenic. Okay, I'll buy that, because he did talk about... There were times when he was walking in the woods, and he would, like, hallucinate a bunch of red-eyed vultures listening to what he was doing and watching him. And sometimes he would, like, look at a pile of leaves, and they would turn into eyes, and he heard voices and stuff. So, yeah, sure, schizophrenia works, right? I think that it has some credence, uh, but I'm not sure. I don't know. Some people said he was a necrophiliac. Well, wasn't he? I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things we really will never know. Eggin was asked about it, and he said that he never had sex with the bodies because they smelled too bad. Oh, keep it classy, Ed. You gotta have standards. Uh, people also said he was a cannibal, but meh. 
Now, one disturbing thing that did happen, hearkening back to Armida's murder episode, is he would routinely give his friends in town pieces of venison, but it was cited over and over again that he never went deer hunting. Is this another Mita's murder case? Yeah, people said that they were given venison by Ed Gein, who completely and totally, till the day he died, denied that he ever butchered a large animal or killed a deer. He didn't like to see blood. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, okay. But, like, he admitted to murdering these women, wouldn't admit to deer hunting. So, anyway, maybe people ate people? Who knows? One of the ideas that is kind of controversial, but you can see where it fits in, is dissociative identity disorder. Okay. So, he has another personality that comes out and commits the murders? Because he always said he didn't really remember doing it. Right, and so that is a disorder also called multiple personality disorder. It is a f- an official disorder. Where is it? In the DSM. And But a lot of people think it's bullshit. Okay. Does it say that in the DSM? Kind of. In dissociative identity disorder, someone usually who has a traumatic past splits their personalities. And the different personalities are there to deal with certain issues. And when certain things come up, that personality is there to take over and deal with that situation until it's safe for the main personality to come out. There is no I in team. Right, and there's a team working here. And in those episodes, you can have a fugue, a dissociation, where that other personality does not know what's going on. But that's not always the case. Sometimes they do. And sometimes they interact. Okay, so this would fit with Norman Bates, for sure. Definitely. But maybe not Eddie Gein. Something I think is really interesting is what Freud would say about all of this. Oh, Freud. This is a very complicated case, and it merits further investigation of the mother figure. The mother figure. So Freud is a controversial figure in psychology. He's the Austrian psychologist that really ushered in modern psychology in the turn of the century. The last one, not the most recent turn. He developed the different developmental stages. And so these stages are anal, oral, phallic, and genital, which Freud was apparently a little preoccupied. Which basically comes down to sex. It's all about sex. Life, all about sex. Sex and the mother. Sex and the mother. And so each of these are stages represented by certain conflicts that one has to get over to move on to the next stage. Okay. And if one does not resolve this conflict, then they get fixed in that stage. With anal, it's like controlling your bowels. Yes. And if you don't overcome that stage, that's where the term anal retentive comes from. So when you say, oh, that guy's anal. It means he's stuck in the anal phase of development. Right, but it means... Constant need for control. Exactly. Well, let's talk about the phase that relates to our boys with mama issues. So that would be the phallic stage. And this is where someone learns the difference between boys and girls. So it happens around three to six years old, and kids are exploring who they are, exploring that they have a penis, have a vagina. And Freud says that there's this very unconscious urge... And guess what it has to do with? The mother? Yes, especially when it comes to boys. And so with the boys, they develop a sexual attraction to the opposite sex parent. Okay. And like you said, this is an unconscious urge. Okay. And also in having this, they begin to fear the same sex parent, and that is what's called castration anxiety. And they're worried that this big, domineering man 
father is going to castrate them. Okay. And there's this tension because the father is the one that is sleeping with the mother. Presumably, yes. Presum- yeah, um, yeah. And so in this, in your resolution of this conflict, is identifying with the same-sex parents. Mm-hmm. So boys would identify with their father, and in doing so, repress those libido sexual urges towards the mother, and accept the appropriate societal role. I don't think Norman or Eddie ever got that. Yeah, you can really see how this fits in. It's like we're saying the parent is that object of the infantile libido energy. And the id wants to kill the father (gasps) and take the mother as his (gasps) own. Gasp! And so what's the id? The id is the Dr. Jekyll. And then you have the superego. Which is the Jiminy Cricket. Yes, and so by accepting your societal role, by relating to the father, you are aligning your superego in the appropriate place. Because that is ultimately your internal moral compass, your conscience, which you should always let be your guide. Unless you don't develop one properly, in which case don't. I think Eddie was following his conscience. If you buy into this, which a lot of people don't, he's suffering from an Oedipal complex. Like the Greek tragedy? Exactly. Oedipus Rex, which was a play written by Sophocles. So Oedipus Rex, not Oedipus Smith. No, not that guy. Okay, that guy. Shh, that guy. That guy's such a dick. Okay, okay, so Oedipus. Oedipus is a figure in Greek tragedy who accidentally marries his mother and then kills his father on purpose, but not knowing it's his father, and, like, finds out that he's married his mother and it drives him insane, and I think he may kill himself. It's, yeah. g- it's good stuff. And the interesting thing is, as a lot of these Greek stories go, they're still read today. Mm-hmm. And they still hold a lot of weight today. And Freud saw this performed. And that's where he got the term from. And where oh, he kind of. Freud, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Right, that's where he <laughs> got the idea. And he also based it on another case study about this boy who was afraid of his father and horses and things. Anyway. Horses, Freud, and horses. <laughs> he also said that Hamlet was another really good example of this. Hamlet had kind of good reason to fear the father figure, though. So what do you think? Do you think you could apply this to Ed Gein? Mm, Yeah, it sounds a lot like what was going on with Ed Gein. He had no identification with his father, mostly because his mother kind of demonized (coughs) him and made him into this deplorable figure and positioned herself as a very strong, saintly person. So, of course, why would you want to identify with someone that you're parent you're closest to hates so no he wouldn't have identified with the father and he did perceive augusta as the paragon of all things womanly both of the women that he is known to have killed looked like her she was the one who told him not to sully himself with women and had a profound influence on his sexual and romantic life I just think it's interesting that this fits in so well. Since the minute that Freud was published, he was a controversial figure. People were immediately decrying what he had said. Right, it's very uncomfortable. No one wants to think about that. A lot of people say the edible complex is complete and utter bullshit. So the whole mother fixation thing, just a story? Yeah, it's just a story with Ed Gein. 